Robert, I don't think this is very funny. Bobby. Who is this? As you watch the screen, your heart begins to beat faster. There's a fluttering in the pit of your stomach. Your throat is dry. Your palms damp. Suddenly a chill runs down your spine. You clutch the person next to you. You tell yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. But sooner or later, it's time to go home. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Ron. And this is our review of Friday the 13th Part 3, starring Dana Kimmel, Paul Kratka, Tracy Savage, Jeffrey Rogers, Catherine Parks, Larry Zerner, and Richard Brooker. Directed by Steve Miner, released in 1982 at a budget of $2.3 million, grossed $36.7 million at the box office. Just hold on a minute. The returns on these movies are insane. I mean, think about this from Paramount's point of view, right? They, these movies cost nothing to make. They buy the distribution cheap for them. They spend almost no money promoting them, and they get $36 million on the back end off of it? Holy cow, no wonder they put them out once a year. Well, it's the, uh, it's the, the Blumhouse model. Right, right. Just, except except none know. of these actors are getting anything on the back end, I don't think. Right, and, and you've never heard of any of them, and you'll never hear of any of them again. Unless you go to conventions. Where, where many of them, by the way, are very proud of their Friday the 13th legacy. So you go all over YouTube and listen to them talk about it. So. And, you as, know, credit, as well they should be. Yeah, you know, credit to it. Like, especially like Larry Zerner, the guy that plays um, Shelly here or whatever. Like, he's an entertainment lawyer in Hollywood now. So, like, he totally owns up to the fact that he was just geeky looking and they're like, yeah, you. You know, <laughs> that, that was it. Tracy Savage went on to be a, a like a broadcast journalist in L.A. So... <laughs> Uh, which is amazing because she's got the voice for it completely. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, and that's interesting. She's gorgeous, but we'll we'll get to her in a minute though because I have a special tribute to her as we go. But Steve <laughs> Miner back to direct here for you know from part two to part three. They decided to do this one in three D. Now, have you ever seen this in three D? I haven't. I have not either. But the the version I watched via Google Play, the version I rented, excuse me, uh, had the three D effects intact. But it, you know, I don't have any glasses or anything, and it wasn't like presented in 3D. But you still got all this stuff, you know, uh, being moved towards the camera. That's actually either cut of the film that you get. It, it you oh. know the yeah, you know which things are in 3D. It's shot in the same kind of camera that Jaws 3D, which would come out a year later, uh, was shot with the over under 3D camera, if you will. However, people that are into that kind of thing, and they both have very similar looks to them. And in the fact that once you 2D it or whatever. I think in the more recent DVDs they've cleaned them up, but some of the original VHS transfers and stuff were grainy as heck. And it's because 
the uh, you basically only use one lens worth when you cut it back down, and it's just really, really, wow. yeah, it's awful. So I mean, it's like looking through one glass that's kind of smudged um, to, to watch it. So, but now on more recent DVD transfers, it's a little cleaner. But this movie again, they're not going to put a lot of money in this because goodness knows what the box, uh, you know, the uh, DVD returns and triple dips have been off of this thing, you know, through the years. But yeah. It- and we're all still waiting on the uncensored versions of all these movies. I, you know, I have a feeling that when they get around to this new one, that is, you know, as we're recording these and releasing them in 2016, there's supposedly another Friday the 13th remake in in process for 2017 that's going to be a Jason origin story or something. I don't know. The, the version of this thing has gone around so many different times now, I don't know what to believe, but... If that ever comes out, I feel like you might get those uncuts back out there. I know there's been a couple of releases of those, but yeah, not as the, proper. Yeah. The first three have come out uncut. It's four where you're really missing a lot of footage. Y- yes, and we'll get to that one in, in, on the next show because there's quite a bit to talk about when it comes to it. But yeah, <laughs> oh <boy. laughs> yeah. But part three here we are. You know, the thing in this one is everybody says, "Well, this is the one where Jason gets his mask," and I I did not know the story behind it until doing a little research for this podcast, Ron. That is almost as accidental as. Uh, the William Shatner mask from Halloween or whatever. They needed to do a lighting test, and nobody wanted to go through the trouble or time to actually put makeup on to make somebody stand in front of it. So the 3D supervisor was a big hockey geek, and he had a Detroit Red Wings mask in his bag, and he just tossed it to the to the stuntman, and he put it on, and it was entirely too small, but they were like, yeah, that kind of looks cool, and they just made bigger masks for Ted White, the stuntman. Or not Ted White, I'm sorry, for Richard Brooker to wear the stuntman, Ted White's in four. But, and that's, I mean, it's almost by complete accident that that becomes the icon of Jason Voorhees is that friggin' hockey mask. Well, I mean, you know, they say uh, necessity is the mother of invention, and more movies have been made on limited budgets than on unlimited budgets. So a lot of times, if you've got some kind of restrictions, or in this case, just pure laziness, <laughs> you could come up with something that's better than what you were actually planning on doing. I think it's also a little bit too, uh, if you're to believe William Shakespeare actually once wrote or said this, is that brevity is the soul of wit, which it means don't waste my friggin' time. And don't <laughs> don't overthink it, kids. Sometimes it, it is what it is. And it's a great look. We'll talk about it when, it, when we get there. But yeah, I, I, I do also laugh and chuckle at all the extra stuff when they talk about that. The production staff totally admits this time casting was based totally off the way people looked. Like everybody from the, the lead girl down to the you know bottom extra was just, they look all right yeah they go with it like no there were no screen tests you know if, that, if they ever release footage of that I will assume it's from another movie because there's no way that they did any t- and they didn't even try with most of these people like you can tell and and I'm not knocking them look we we said from the beginning if you're gonna watch a Friday the Thirteenth movie you have to go in accepting for the fact that these things are made purely for profit and. No no thought whatsoever is given to the story. Like they, they don't even try to have a story in most you, of them. You mean you're not a fan of Kenneth Branagh's Friday the Thirteenth? <laughs> I, I indeed am not. <laughs> But uh, you know what? Uh, as we get into uh, this this film, and I think before we go any further into it, I think you got to tell people what goes down in part three here, Ron. So hit us up with a plot summary. Sure thing. Chris Higgins and several of her friends are looking for a little rest and relaxation at the Higgins family summer cottage 
which just happens to be next to Crystal Lake. Years ago, Chris was attacked by a mysterious man in the woods and is still shaken by the memories. Of course, that man was Jason Voorhees, who is back to take out her friends and anyone else who gets in the way. Chris proves to be a worthy adversary as she injures the now hockey mask-wearing maniac several times before she finally puts him down with an axe to the forehead. However, in a strange scene post-climax, Chris is in a canoe when the decomposed body of Mrs. Voorhees, complete with reattached head somehow, <laughs> jumps ahead. out of the water to drag her under. Was that a dream? Was it just Chris's fractured psyche? All we know for sure is Jason lies motionless on a hay bale with an axe in his head as credits roll at the end of part three. <laughs> I'm sorry I couldn't contain myself because <laughs> it's one thing to watch this film. It's another to try to describe it to somebody. And I, I want to admit now, I, I wrote that almost totally off of the back of the DVD <laughs> that I have, with the exception of the, the last paragraph there about the ending, because it ends with, you know, Chris is a worthy adversary, and I'm like... Yeah, but what about the end? Because we got to talk about that. And here's the funny thing. The producers, uh, Mancuso and, and the people writing this and stuff, thought, well, this is going to be it. That we're going to make a trilogy out of it. So the, number three is it. We're going to end it, and we'll, we'll kill him dead this time. We'll just put an axe in his forehead. That'll be friggin' awesome, right? And then somewhere near the end of the film, they're like, well, we might come back. You know, I'm sure someone from Paramount said, "Don't, don't totally do anything irreversible," because if yeah, they saw uh, the dailies of this, I mean, the thing was is that they shot this very quickly, but it took them forever to do anything because it, you know, it took 30 minutes to set up a two-second shot with a yo-yo. You know, I mean, <laughs> like they they spent hours doing stuff that you know because the 3D, but, they, but like what the the stuff they were producing out. The Paramount was like, oh, yes, we want more. So it may have been their intention to end it, but somebody upstairs said, uh, don't do anything totally irreversible. Yeah, they actually uh, changed the ending from, I believe you're supposed to get decapitated. Oh, actually, uh, the, the original ending is Chris is having this freak out again, and she turns around, and we see the machete decapitate her a la callback to part one. So in the, in the end, uh, Jason was supposed to win, and nobody was supposed to survive. So uh, interesting. Apparently, that is in the novelization of this. Which, if you have the money to spend on that, uh, please Xerox it for me, uh, because I will never buy it to read it. But I've been told that in a number of resources that the original script had her being beheaded. Yeah, if you have the money to buy a novelization, just let us know and we'll set up a Patreon for you. Uh, yeah, you know we don't do donations on this podcast, but if you want to talk to us on the side, we'll gladly let you sponsor us. So anyway, yeah, but you know what though, I kind of like the idea of that. I know it'll never happen, but like they say, there, there's an ending where they shot that where they you know, and it just didn't look right, and they decided to go the other way. But I I kind of would want to see that. It's a little dark, but it it would have been fun. Well, think about it this way. Like you said, there's all the difficulties of shooting with 3D, and every shot took forever to set up. And they made the movie for $2.3 million. Imagine how cheap it would have been if they could have just shot it with a normal camera and gotten it done in a month. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they would have like spent half the money on this if they could have. And I've heard a lot of people say this, and I think it's a very fair criticism and, and almost joke about this film, is that Friday the 13th like gave up so early. <laughs> it's like, hey, what do we got left to do? I don't know, 3D. You know, <laughs> it's just like, yeah. like you usually wait on that for a few sequels. Nah, let's go ahead well, and do it. So it was it was the 
a fad at the time. Well, Everybody was, was doing 3D again. Th- this was the thing that brought it back, oddly enough. It, Jaws did it, and then all these... Amityville had a 3D, which if you've ever seen that... Oh, talk about bad sequels. Maybe one day, but, <laughs> but I mean, really. like You're right. It was a renaissance for 3D in the 80s. This is the first one Paramount had produced since, like, the 50s. You know, so they were all in on this thing. And I, there's, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff about the 3D and, and all that they went through to try to make this work. But uh, all the actors and people that will talk about it will tell you that what they mostly spent the time doing was letting people set up the 3D shot, and then they would shoot the thing, and it was very, we got it, good, we're done. You know, there was no like getting another take at it because once they finally got it in focus, they were like, we're moving on, we got, we got to keep going here because they did get this thing out quick. I mean, they oh. took an, they took an extra year in between part two and this, but uh, you know they. They knew what they were doing with it. I love how this one picks up, too. It's the end of part two again. But we get a little extra scene. We get Jason kind of crawling away, and we don't get that weird jump through the window scene that was at the end of part two that we both thought was just so inexplicable. And and they kind of retcon themselves. And in a time before there was a lot of you know, home video release of these things, you'd get away with it, right? Because it had been a couple of years since anybody had seen Friday the 13th, too. Yeah. Um, I mean, even, I, I think even we are both still uh, old enough to remember when things didn't come out on VHS or when to buy VHS movies would cost you like $100 because you had to yeah. buy like a commercial VHS Oh yeah, it was it was long before the sell through, and even before the rent, you know, rental thing had taken over. That was more like eighty four, eighty five that that rentals started taking over everything in eighty six. It this was early into that, so it also explains the reason for the extended playback of things that have happened. You know, some previous kills, but not as much as we had had before. Actually, I remembered that there were more of that, but they really just give us that new extra scene at the end. Uh, maybe they're, I don't know, maybe they're more confident that they're pitching to an audience of of loyal perverts. Maybe it's that, or maybe that they they just figured, eh, who cares anyway? Because the funny thing is, is Jason was like this sort of hunched over, hunched back in Notre Dame mountain man looking thing last time. And in the concept of a day, I mean, this is supposed to be the next day, so... I guess ostensibly Saturday the fourteenth is happening now. <laughs> he like gets he bulks up one. His shoulders and, and arms are huge now. And he you know, he recovers from what had to have been a severed collarbone, you know, <laughs> and he shaves his head. So I'm like, Jason goes for a totally new look when he goes to rip off new clothes at the local market. Yeah, it's uh he's getting a little more uh Toxic Avengery, except he predates the Toxic Avenger. Thank you. I, you know, a lot of people will say Chunk from the Goonies, but honestly, my first thought was Toxic Avenger. It does kind of look Toxic Avengerish. Yeah, yeah. And, and considering Toxic Avenger doesn't come out till '84, the same year as Friday the Thirteenth, the next chapter or the final chapter, excuse me. There's definitely, I, I guarantee you, Lloyd Kaufman saw this at Times Square. It was like, eh, I could do that for. A hundred bucks. <laughs> I'm sure he did. It, in his only, only in his Roger Corman type way, <laughs> could he do that? But, but can we talk about the theme song for a second before we get to Harold and Edna who get whacked here pretty early with Jason's new outfit? What in the world is this thing? 
That it's it's awesome is what it is. It's hilarious is what it is. Okay, Harry Manfredini will tell you. They basically just reused the score from part two because he was working on another movie, but he wrote a couple little pieces, and then he took the Jason theme over to a disco guy. Who was like, and he said, you know, that was the thing at the time. So we thought, well, this is a great idea. And so he he said, you got to have these chords, and it's got to have this little move in it. And the disco guy was like, yeah, man, that's fresh. And he said, then three weeks later, it came out, and he was like, well, I guess that'll do it. And that was it. And I mean, like they, I'm like, that is so gonzo and hilarious that it could only work in a Friday the Thirteenth movie. I, I'm I'm a little disappointed they didn't carry that throughout the rest of the. The franchise. Yeah, this is the I, one and only right here, yeah. I, I mean, wouldn't you have loved like a nice blondie style Friday the thirteenth theme for part uh, for part four? Well, you know, later on they're gonna get into the bond motif and I'm like, why didn't you just get a new song every time and it become like a bond thing? Like who's gonna do the Friday the thirteenth theme song this year? Yeah, like, you that, can get yeah. you can get Duran Duran, you could get Striper. Uh, Striper doing a Friday the Thirteenth song would have been so awesome. By the way, <laughs> so that, how did that not happen? So <laughs> it, it would all right. It would probably cost too much to get like Striper, but well, you, you could, could probably you get like got, Scorpions. No, you could have got Wasp. They'd have done it for nothing. Oh <laughs> so, yeah, during the the sticker days, Twisted Sister would have done three of them probably. Come on, <laughs> you know. I mean, this yeah, we we missed out on that. But no, I I do love the funky theme song and graphics. Very. I wrote down Jaws 3D style and realized I'm talking about a movie that comes out a year later. So Universal just ripped off Paramount's opening here pretty much for if you've ever seen Jaws 3D, so uh, uh, which I have seen in 3D. So uh, I do love that we get a laundry pole all up in my face um, <laughs> here uh, to and, and exposition on the television screen because no character can be trusted to tell us anything in this movie, Ron. So I have to listen very carefully to the murder news that is going down as Harold, the general store you know, eat his own product guy and his true wife uh, are talking about things going down neighborly to them. All right. Uh, a quick question about Harold. As he's walking through his store eating uh, the things he's selling, ostensibly selling, he drinks from a thing of what looks like Sunny Delight. Yes. Is but that? Yeah. here's the thing. It's sitting on a shelf, a non-refrigerated like wooden shelf with sunny delight on it. How terrible would that be yeah. after your mouthful of peanuts? Warm sunny delight with a mouthful of peanuts chased by a chocolate donut. Yeah. Uh, by a man who, by the way, has used the bathroom and not washed his hands. Oh, of <laughs> so, course not. Or used paper. Let's just say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It. Uh, it's awful. Yeah. It, I. It is. I think it's one of those. Again, we talked about how Jason a lot of times kills people that you don't like and immediately you're like I don't give a crap who these people are you know so you're like well I guess Jason's going to kill them because they do a Halloween thing here they let Jason stand behind sheets and just kind of lurk you know for but we've never seen him doing that like we know he does it cuz you see it from his point of view sometimes in the first two movies but you never like see the the outline of his body hanging there and people going like what you doing you know and they have no idea what's going on out there. And, and I'm like, people that live out in the, the, the country like this, that run that kind of a store, I think they would be the kind of folks that if they heard about mass murder on the news, they'd be locking everything down. Like, I don't think they'd, they'd be loading up guns. Like, I don't think these are the kind of people that are like, eh, whatever. Yeah, that's definitely not the, not the right response for uh, something like that, for people like this. Because, you know, you know, 
Harold might be a nice guy. We see he's nice to animals or whatever, but Edna's definitely ready to shoot somebody. Oh, totally. Well, yeah, Harold and his rabbit um, thing, which is, that is, again, why that had to be, I don't know. But we had to have, did- somebody had a rabbit as a pet, I guarantee <laughs> you, in the crew, and they're like, that thing is so cute. Just put it on the screen. Just let, hey, it seems to kind of like the guy that plays Harold. Just let him play with it. Okay. And I'm sure that rabbit is like, I'm going to poop on you. I'm going to poop. It has that look on its face. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm not happy with you touching me. So uh, can we talk about the fake snake that jumps out of the <laughs> the mailbox or whatever to, the heck that to, was? To set up a poop joke? Yes. Uh, what was that all about? Uh, somebody had a rubber snake, I guess. I mean, these are the things they're putting in our face, and I'm going, wow, we really don't know. Like, We just decided to do a movie in 3D with absolutely no idea of what we wanted to do in 3D, right? Like, There are a couple of shots where they use the 3D with what you think it would be, with Jason stabbing things or whatever, but most of it is this kind of crap. Yeah, a ridiculous, like, wasted 3D, waste of a rubber snake kind of shots. And they, um, they would spend hours setting them up. That's what I find hilarious, is I don't know how they got a movie made with as much time as they spent setting up these shots. Oh, uh, they, uh, I'm sure they didn't pay any of the actors anything. Probably so not. That's, that's where your savings comes. You know, Everybody's working for scale. Yeah, I can see that. It is the Blumhouse thing again, right? Or before that existed. but uh, And with people that were never going to be big enough to, to cash in on it on the long run. Because, again, they're cast by, you have good hair, you look nice, nice body, nice smile. You can walk in your hands cool. Will you, so, will you, t- will you take your top off for this movie? So <laughs> yes? Okay, you're yeah, in. That's pretty much everybody in this movie, it seems like. We'll, we'll get to the, the gratuitous nudity here in a bit. But uh, the kills, though. Okay, so Harold gets it with a meat cleaver in the chest, uh, and then Edna gets the knitting meat needle through the back of the head. I thought they were pretty good makeup effects. Tom Savini was actually available, and they just didn't ask him uh, for whatever reason. So I guess they just went with their same cheap guys from part two. He he probably wanted more than $5 to do it. <laughs> that is also true. So I mean, uh, he, he had to be definitely more in demand after the success of the first uh, Friday the 13th. Well, yeah, I mean, he was working the last time. That's why they didn't get him for part two. But then, you know, he he will tell you, I was available for three, and they didn't ask me, so I just figured, eh, that's kind of come and gone. He'll come back for part four, which is the the part of that story that makes him go, and then they called me for part four, and I was like, sure. You know, (laughs) so, uh, because, again, I guess there were some more zeros at the end of the check, or actually zeros at the end of the check uh, this time around, so... Uh, but no, they they get it, and we kind of want that. And then we meet our new cast, right? Okay, so we get Chris. And let's talk about Chris here first, right? As final girls go, um, she's definitely not high on the list of commanding performances in my book in horror films. But no. She, no. Um, she's got a little bit of that Phoebe Cates from Gremlins thing going on. That's, that's what she kind of reminds me of. And it's not just because she has the monologue where she stares off into the nothing and, and tells a story about how she was attacked by Jason once, but it's it's in her eyes, the way she dresses, her voice, the way she looks. I mean, she really does kind of look like Phoebe Cates to me. That's, I mean, that's probably why they cast her. They were like, can we get uh, budget Phoebe Cates? 
Yes. I mean, I mean okay, would great. anybody have even known who that was at this point? I mean, had fast. I guess yeah. This came out the same time as Fast Times, so nobody knew who she even was. This is the funny thing, and it beat the crap out of it at the box office. By the way, so it's it's funny that we mentioned that because this is before Phoebe Cates was anything anybody would know. But uh, unless I guess maybe people knew her from TV and stuff. But uh, see, I thought I, I thought she was more of a thing by this time. But I, my, my memory is yeah, I, I'm missing her. I guess, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah, but I, I don't know. It, again, Chris is a final girl. Eh, eh, I don't know. She's got she's got problems. Uh, that that's clearly the case. I mean, she's this trip is kind of I don't know forced catharsis. She's kind of doing an Alice here uh, from part two. She's making herself go back to the scene of the you know attack or something. Yeah, I think that's the point. It's. Um you know, uh, like uh, aversion therapy or the opposite of uh, aversion therapy where you expose yourself to the thing you're afraid of by degrees and become more comfortable with it. Uh, Maybe that's why she's friends with a guy who dresses up in horror masks like Shelly. Because otherwise, why would she ever hang out with a dude like that? Oh, Shelly's... Uh, Shelly's... Rick's roommate, I think. That's what it is. Okay, so no, not Rick's roommate. He's not Andy, Rick. Andy's roommate. Andy's roommate. Yeah, yeah. And that's and they drag him along because I assume Andy couldn't get rid of him. He got him a date, you know, for this somehow. Or, some somehow, I guess he must have lied to her. I don't know. Let's talk about Andy and Debbie though, because they are lovey dovey couple here, right? Uh-huh. And Andy is a bit of a circus performer in training, right? Like, he's great with the yo-yo. He can walk on his hands all the time. He seems to be pretty athletic or whatever. And Debbie, and uh, aside from having a great voice for a future newscaster and, and a good look, may be the greatest horror girlfriend ever, okay? Yeah. <laughs> First off, she's pregnant. All right, we find this out, which, by the way, that had to be early on because there's a shower scene with her, and no. Nah. So, yeah. um, but, okay, so I don't know how she knew that, but whatever. So she she's pregnant. She She's really nice to Chris. Like, apparently they're buds, you know. She lets Andy be his goofy self. She's always talking about having sex with him. She reads Fangoria. I, what else could you want from this chick? I mean, she's the greatest stereotypical horror girlfriend ever. It's like a nerd's dream. And she's gorgeous. Yeah, that's uh, she's definitely uh, good-looking, and she's not, like, offended when it's time to pass around the six-pack or... or pass around uh trying to get chuck and chili to pass the bong up front right yeah the joints are going she's like nah you know i'm gonna pass remember i'm pregnant but like she doesn't care if everybody else partakes you know yeah, she yeah so she's me. definitely uh, surprisingly cool yeah uh, very surprisingly cool i think you could write like a whole series of articles on den of geek about debbie so, <laughs> I mean, but the pregnant ankle what why is that there? They don't reference it. They don't really come back to it ever again, except to drop that line like twice. Uh, maybe it was an attempt to make her death a little more tragic. I guess. I mean, I, but but it's like I that makes it awful. Like that makes this movie try to go into a place that it's never tried to be before, where it's never tried to be serious about who got killed. It's just people got killed. Eh, you know, it's just they got killed. You know, we've never. Like now, Debbie's got other things going on that we have to root for and think about. It's very, I mean, for 1982, I know it was a topic. It was something that people would be thinking about, but it's also very unsettling. 
Yeah, it's it's definitely a weird decision. I don't know if it was. Uh, the only thing I, I could think of other than that is that the actress was uh, not willing to drink the near beer <laughs> that they were handing out. <laughs> so they had to write for write a reason around that that wouldn't take away her cool points. They could have just let her be like ex Mormon or something. I don't know. <laughs> so, I mean, I I don't know. It just it is odd, and I haven't watched enough behind the scenes stuff and seen enough to see if they ever bother to try and explain it. I don't really care. It's just it's they make a point of calling it out, and it also changes something for me here. These are like college age kids, right? These are not high schoolers anymore. No, I, I would say these are definitely college kids or 35 year olds in some cases <laughs> well yeah chuck and chili are definitely like the adult chaperones um yeah. for, Ch- for chuck and chili are the non-traditional students that's their maybe they all go to a community college like there's nothing wrong with that by the way and then they do hang with the non-traditional students or maybe chuck and chili work at the community college with them i don't know they're like their dorm parents or something <laughs> so i mean really because they they're, i mean they're the campus dealers yeah well you know chuck and chili obviously we're, we're ripping off cheech and Chong there, but we're going co-ed this time, so uh, not the kind of people you'd put together, you know. <laughs> so, again, they, they didn't do a, a great job. Of ma- Andy and Debbie look like they go together. All the other quote couples here do not look like they fit with each other, <laughs> like at all. No, but uh, Chuck does kind of look like uh, Tommy Chong. He does have a little bit of Tommy Chong going. You're right, and I think and all of it is in the beard and the headband and the glasses. That's just the, yeah, yeah. They definitely said, "Can you grow a beard?" Yes. All right, yeah. you're you got this exactly. So, can you smoke? Well, I actually, don't smoke. Well, we'll just get you some oregano and okay, go with it. So, um, I don't know what all they had all kinds of stuff for him to smoke apparently on this, but uh, that was not a uh, real. Marijuana, they say, uh, but <clears throat> you, we meet these people, right? We meet Vera, who has you know the mean, typically uh, angry Hispanic mother. Um, or was that Spanish she was screaming at, or I don't know. It just sounded like it. I, I assume it's Spanish because I don't know if there were any other like available minorities in 1982 or whatever. I would be curious to know if she actually even saying anything, or if that's just like somebody else working on the set. This is like this is what my grandmother used to sound like when she got really pissed at my dad. You know, yeah, or probably just probably just some uh, angry gibberish. Right. We also get an inexplicable new Ralph for one scene who's laying in the road who has an eyeball, which apparently comes from Harold or Edna at some point. Yeah, um, I didn't. I didn't get the whole. I don't understand what the point was with new Ralph. Because if you were going to do that, why did you kill off old Ralph? Right, or why didn't you just let that guy come back and be like, you killed my brother, you know, and now I'm back. Yeah, um, it's the the Crank 2 uh, solution. <laughs> there we go, right. Where they're identical twins. Right, do that, something. You know, I I don't know, but yeah, I'll tell you the reason is, so let's stick that eyeball in the frame. That'll freak everybody out in the seats. I guess oh, in yeah. 1982 it didn't take a lot, you know, but... Woo, holy cow. It's it's really a weird scene and again not somebody we ever see again. So like if he had gotten you know killed or if he was hanging from a tree later or something, it would have made some sense. But again, they spent too much time setting up the shots in this movie. They didn't have time to worry about where are we in the script? Ah, who cares? You know what I mean? Yeah. Just, and we get to meet Rick who I wrote down as Chris's whatever. Now, what are they? The I mean, he's a, a local farm boy that apparently works for her family's farm that has no animals, by the way. But he, what is he to her? Because besides being a total dick. 
I don't know. They've got kind of the weird um, uh, Friday the 13th Part 2 vibe. Uh, yeah, yeah, but but Paul and Jenny, like, uh, you, the, like, they made out. Like, you could tell they were for real or whatever. It's more like the Part 1 thing with Alice and old Steve. Oh, whatever. yeah, yeah. yeah. That's it, better. It feels more like that. Because Rick is clearly at least, what, 10 years older than this chick? Like, Ten to, 10 to 15, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he and he's got a great voice, by the way. I understand he went on to become like a chiropractor or something in life, and he's he's got a great voice. It's, he sounds like a disc jockey almost, but uh, when it comes down to it, though, he like does nothing useful the entire film, except sit there and let her exposition into the woods. Uh, maybe that's his whole point. Maybe maybe he's her therapist. Not good. Well, yeah, why didn't we do that? Might as well. I, we'll get the therapist later in this series. They'll, they'll <laughs> yeah. do that one, too. So when you got ten movies, man, there's there's not many tropes we're not going to cross. So, but uh, we're only the third one. So um, I, I did write that at this point, because the music is just all over the place, that it's as out there as the visuals are supposed to be. In fact, I think the music is more 3D than the film. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's... I wish I was one of those lucky people who'd got the six CD box set of uh, the music. They put out a oh, box wow. set of of music from the first like six movies or whatever, and it sold out in less than a day because apparently everybody wanted it. I I can only imagine what there would have been to listen to on it. <laughs> Maybe there's a lot of stuff from this that we just don't hear, but. Um, <laughs> I mean, Man, it's worth it for this opening theme alone. It's weird. It's the, like the last my movie too, where they don't have like real music. Like they don't try to find actual songs to put in it. You know, the rest of the time they actually do put a pop soundtrack to it. But this time it's it's all this funky synth and stuff, which has always been there. Again, I mean, it's most of the the score is from part two. But when they try to play music that people are listening to, it's I don't know what this is from off the AM dial. Yeah, somebody found the. Uh, somebody rooted through John Carpenter's garbage. <laughs> yeah, like the low cuts off of Carpenter stuff. By the way, on a side note, if you just want something cool to listen to on Spotify, uh, Lost Themes from Carpenter is really good. It's, it's it's exactly what you think it would be if you haven't listened to it. I'll put a little plug in there for John Carpenter, um, who hates this series, by the way, and thinks it's complete garbage. But well, anyway, he's not wrong. He's not, but it can be fun. So we meet the lamest biker gang known to mankind. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Fox, Loco, and Ali. <laughs> All right. They have a run-in in the store with Shelly and Vera. We we run over their motorcycles. They punch through a they punch through Paul's VW bug. That VW bug goes through a beating. It's the first victim, really, of the film after Edna and Harold. Like it gets destroyed by these people, but they're still able to drive it out of there. And this biker gang decides we're going to go siphon the gas out of your van and burn the bar down, barn down, but we're not going to hurt anybody. Like, one of them goes out of their way to say, we're not going to hurt nobody. I'm like, but why not? <laughs> Isn't that what you're supposed to do? And yeah, how far it, was town from this place that they could just go, well, I bet they're from over there. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe they follow. Maybe it's a dirt road all the way back uh, from the gas station or whatever that store was supposed to be and and they just followed the trail all the way or maybe it's just you know the magic of plot convenience 
Well, did we have a sheet where we told how they got there? I don't know, man. I don't know. Set up that yo-yo shot again. We'll worry about that later. I'm sure that's how the conversation went. <laughs> Steve yeah. Miner was like, there's a script? Oh, there's a script? Okay. So as long as the actors have it, I don't really need it. So Yeah, and, and let's not kid ourselves. It's never a great idea to start a barn fire. No. Uh, <laughs> And, and they just say, oh, nobody's going to get hurt. You don't know that. No, no. I, I, the, these idiots are clearly all over, all over this this plot of land. You don't know who's doing what in the hayloft. Exactly. You've already got like people hanging out. And what they don't know is Jason is hanging out in the friggin' hayloft, you know, because he's stalking these people for, for – because he doesn't have his face cover anymore. So he's, he's stalking them, waiting for his chance to get at them, right? And – he takes a, a chance. He kills Fox off screen. We, a lot of off screen kills. We've already talked about that in the first two movies that we, but we get to see more evidence here. He hangs her up by the neck with a pitchfork, which is a pretty cool looking gag. And then he puts one through Loco's stomach, which I assume is one of those shots that's supposed to come through the screen. Oh yeah, definitely. I think one of the reasons why they did the off screen uh, kill of Fox was because they couldn't figure out a way to make it make the spines go towards the camera and still have her stuck against the wall. Yeah. I mean, cause Jason's at least a foot taller than her. So he's got to like stab her, pick her up and then jam her through the, the door, you know, the overframe of the, of the bar. This, and this is all on a cut collarbone. This man is strong. So, I mean, he's been eating his Wheaties out there in the woods all these years without, with mom's head. So. He's, He's got what in the olden days, in the non PC days, you used to be able to call it retard strength. <laughs> yeah, country strong, uh, a little Lenny, maybe. Let him go pet the rabbit. <laughs> yeah. A while. Speaking of, why wasn't Harold's name Lenny? <laughs> why wasn't it? Yeah, you know, because again, if they spent any time working on this story, somebody would have figured that out. But they were more worried about that laundry pole's not in focus. So, <laughs> so they spent all day on that. So Ali, though, gets clubbed. Because he comes at Jason with a machete, and Jason like hits him with a, a stick a bunch and leaves him. And he'll come back later, which is funny, because Jason usually like overkills people. <laughs> but he just lets that guy live. He's like, oh, shiny. <laughs> he sees the machete, and it's, oh, I'm, I'm all about that now. So the iconic weapon and, and the mask are all happening in the same movie. Which which is is, to me, really interesting, because I don't know about you. Maybe it's because I live in the city, but... I could count on one hand the number of people I know that have machetes. You can add one more to that because I actually own one because I've used one to clear off some little little wooded area behind where we live now and stuff like that. But I'll tell you, like you can get decently expensive ones, but they're not that strong of a weapon. In fact, they bend and break pretty easy, uh, <laughs> chopping down just little sapling stuff. So what Jason's able to accomplish with one in this movie later on is fairly impressive. He he must have the uh, he must have got the full tang version. You know what? No, it's, it, that one was made in America. The one <laughs> I've got is probably stamped out in Thailand somewhere, something like they're Venezuela or something. But yeah, so they don't make them like they used to. So uh, we do get the flashback scene here, though, where Chris is telling. Uh, useless rock hudson or whatever uh, her run-in <laughs> with jason who by the way is wearing the same clothes he has on now <laughs> for the run-in but continuity aside I, I you know i wrote down is this inspired by phoebe cage thing and i was like nope wait a minute that was later <laughs> and i was like i think they ripped that off somebody ripped somebody off here i i would not put me past spielberg seeing this going you know this movie is crap but that was actually pretty good 
and, and telling Phoebe Gates, do that uh, Friday the Thirteenth thing. So yeah, I could, I could I could definitely see that if and you know I guarantee you Joe Dante saw this movie, so he oh, probably Joe, Joe Dante <laughs> saw this movie in Times Square exactly. So yeah, he he may have been the one that told her about it, but I I so see that in this now, and I'm going to ask you an uncomfortable question right now. Okay, what? Does happens between Chris and Jason in the woods two years prior? Oh, uh, that's a great question. Uh, it does come across a little molesty. <laughs> um, I mean, this is the second time this movie has presented information without saying much more about it, but that is very uncomfortable to think about. We've got a pregnant girl, you know, that is going to be slaughtered later. And now we've got this girl who may or may not have been assaulted in the woods. And I'm not trying to make fun of that, okay? It's not a funny thing. But to just sort of throw that out there and then do nothing with it, to like give us nothing else with it, shows me how little thought they really put into any of this. And that I'm applying way more thought to it than is necessary. But Do, do you think they established that uh, the only reason they established she had a run-in with Jason years before is to retcon how adult Jason... Would coexist with his decapitated mother. I I think that's exactly it. I think they they already realized. Well, we we've, we've kind of set this up out here that you know the end of part one was just a dream, but that he was still out there somewhere, and that he has seen this happen. So that's why he. I mean, he even kills like his mother did in that second movie. He kills like she did in the first one. And in this one too, he kills almost just like she did. So it's like he was watching it the whole time anyway. Mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering if that's not part of why this exists here. And also to have an excuse to why this girl would go out there. Uh, you know, it, other than just, I want to go out there with my friends. Like, they want to try to give her some, you know, greater meaning than just that. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the 80s. You could have dyed her hair and she could have gone out there to detox from heroin. Something, uh, right? Like, yeah. the, like the Evil Dead remake. <laughs> right. Yeah. She got, she got, I don't think they were thinking that far ahead. Was heroin even a thing in 1982? I guess they did come on the scene at that point. So. Oh, yeah, because uh, <laughs> so. that's what uh, Sid Vicious died from. Oh, that's right. So may, maybe they could have done that. You're right. But they, She could have been yeah. a punk rocker. Yeah, but they, they don't go that route. They make her very squeaky clean. Uh, because she is like uh, as undressed as some of these other women get in this movie, particularly Debbie later on or whatever. She, this woman stays as clothed as possible. I'm, I'm assuming this isn't supposed to be like the fall or the winter or something. These people are wearing sweaters. I mean, she, you know, I'm like, is it that cold out there in Jersey in the summer night? Uh, maybe it is. I don't know. Yeah, um... I, I I know just from camping around lakes that it does get colder at night. True. Um, but, I mean, maybe there's a big difference between the temperature in Kentucky and the temperature in upstate New York or wherever this is supposed to be. <laughs> this is supposed to be in Jersey again. So, in Jersey again? Okay. Uh, I do think this was this was all shot in California so that they could be close to the 3D experts, though. So they did move it from the East Coast to the West Coast on this one. That's a surprise. So, yeah. So Well, it was all because they had to do 3D stuff. So that was the only reason. So It's also probably why the budget was as high as it was. So, maybe, uh, maybe Crystal Lake is near... Romaville. <laughs> there you go. Very well could be. Could have been a suburb. So or the or neighboring county. They played each other in high school. So uh so <laughs> yeah. like, like like Fairvale and whatever that one in Psycho Three is the, the other high school. So and Norman Bates is part of uh 
California or wherever he is. But yeah, we get her her flashback, and then we get kills five and six. And this has been set up, like, there's a lot of setup with these characters. Everybody's kind of Chuck and Chili are off doing their thing. They're popping popcorns, you know, going to get higher than they already are. De- Debbie and Andy have gone off to find better things to do with their hands. <laughs> uh, because th- there's been a juggling contest, and now Vera, like poor Shelly, he's tried to make the moves on Vera. <laughs> She's like, oh, "Hold on, there, cowboy, uh, not not quite." And he, as as retaliation, she goes down to the lake or whatever, and he jumps out of the the lake wearing a hockey mask, uh, you know, a diving suit, and a spear gun at her um, to try and scare her, and it works. You know, um, I will say right now. The fact that he had all that gear on him <laughs> for this trip, I'm like, you go in planning that you're going to do this to people. Like, you didn't just say, well, I think I'll throw on the wetsuit now. Yeah, Shelly is definitely the kind of guy who sits around and thinks of of fun pranks, in quotes. He would have been like a YouTube superstar uh, 20, 30 years in the future because that's this is the kind of stuff that, that those monsters on YouTube do to pass off as practical jokes. <laughs> I could see him on a show like Jackass. Like, my name's Shelly, and I'm going to be screwing with Vera all day. You know, <laughs> and that's, yeah. that's what would have gone down, you know. Uh, but it's also the boy cried wolf bit, because when we see him later, he's basically killed off screen. He walks into Chuck and Chili's area bleeding from the neck, and they think he's just screwing around, and no, he actually is dying. So, Because uh, that would be the, that, that would have been like the third time he's faked his death. Uh, right to this point, exactly. And, he's, already, he's already done it once, and so yeah. And believe me, they could not mm-hmm. kill this guy off fast enough for me. <laughs> you were ready for him to die. <laughs> I hated him so much. He is annoying, isn't he? In a plump little way. So I mean, yeah. Uh, J- Jonah Hill, Jonah Hill's dad is terrible. <laughs> you know what? He is very Jonah Hill, but not, with none of the comic timing, though. Sorry, Larry, but yeah. So he has none of that uh, super bad going on there. Uh, boy, I just rewrote Super Bad to be a much better film than it is. By the way, what if Jason had shown up? So um, <laughs> yes. that would have been a great third act. That, forget Emma Stone. So <laughs> bring in Jason. But anyway, uh, we we get we get Vera who. You know, drops Shelly's wallet in the in the water, so she's going to get it, and like she's like relating to this wallet because there's a picture of him with like grandma or something in it, which is you know, oh he's sweet. Maybe I should go give him another chance. And then Jason walks out on the pier, and for like six minutes stands there lining up that one-handed spear gun shot. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I love that she's like, come on, Shelly, you know, and does it by and. It, it's cheesy. You see the string or whatever, but it's impressive. That's a heck of a shot with a spear gun, man. That that's pretty good. Yeah, I, I didn't know spear guns had that kind of range, but that's Jason is a, has many skills. I mean, we've seen him chop, yeah. we've seen him strangle, we've seen him. Uh, didn't he use like a bow and arrow? Uh, not yet, but not uh, yet. Well, you know, Mom did though in that Mom other did. movie. But, yeah. yeah, but you know, he has used airs to hang people up. He's hung people with a darn uh, pitchfork at this point. He's strong, no doubt, and and he gets that shot. And then I love the the swagger of it. It's great because he shoots her and he drops the spear gun like James Bond style, like done, <laughs> you know. So, and I love and I can only think Richard Brooker was like, I'm tired of standing here holding this thing, and that was his final reaction was, Ugh, did you get it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, uh, how of how long it took Jason to line up that shot? Imagine how long it took them to work out the logistics of oh. a the flying spear 
<laughs> me how to get it to fly towards the 3D camera without hitting the 3D camera, which is worth more than every actor's life on the set. Exactly, right? <laughs> how to not hit the mic, the boom mic, so you could, you know, you're picking up all the ambient sound. How to get the sound synced with it right in the post-production. Then they had to figure out what to do with, uh, you know, the upper half of Vera that they, you know, jammed that thing into, and so it looks realistic, which is a good makeup job, by the way. That, you know, that takes time to cast a full body like that and do that. I I thought that looked cool. So uh, yeah, it's definitely one of the uh, the highlights of uh, one of the best kills of part three for sure. It may be one. It may be the best kill actually because um, the next two though are pretty good. Uh, it, yeah, Andy I'm and partial Debbie. to our next to kill seven. Okay, so yeah, so Andy and Debbie um, are you getting it on in a hammock, which. I understand is mostly impossible. I've never tried it, <laughs> um, but the research is lacking, in my opinion, on whether or not that would actually work. But uh, people I've talked to say there's no way <laughs> that that's happening. But again, another reason Debbie's the greatest girlfriend ever because a hammock, sure. <laughs> you know, yeah, so. cons- considering how much trouble I have getting in a hammock as one person, I can only imagine how uh, how much trouble it is when you've got two people in there trying to engage in activities. Yeah, exactly, right? And so they get done, and Debbie goes to take a shower, and Andy decides to go downstairs and get you know some drinks, right? And he's walking on his hands, and I'm sure this is just something like the actor said, hey, I can do this, and they're like, this is pretty cool. Figure out how to chop this kid in half. So now you say you love this kill, so I'll let you take it from there. Yes, as, as, as Andy's walking around on his hands, uh, who should he run into but good old Mr. Jason Voorhees himself. And Jason puts that newly found machete, the strongest machete ever made clearly to good use. And he cleaves this kid in two from groin to uh, probably about uh, what's that chest thing. Uh, right in your- a, the stern. I'm like right under the rib cage. It looked like yeah. Like he I mean, go he- like uh, if you judging by the chops, the, the bisected body we see later, he got him from like crotch to rib cage. I can see that in 3D, that would have probably freaked people the hell out. Like to see that coming down and just the way he sort of flops to the ground, it's a it's it is the effective kill of this film. I mean it it's grotesque. It's you know it's sudden and it's also, I mean it's impressive again because you're taking something that's a little more than just a good knife and you're chopping a body in half with it. It's it's pretty awesome work. Yeah, it's it's this is the this is one of the ones along with the uh the wheelchair kill from part 2 that you see on all of the montages. Yes, this this one always cuz the other thing the pitchfork like coming at you that ultimately gets in loco. I've seen that one on a ton of those too. They show that yeah. one a lot for reasons too, but no, I'm I'm with you. There's a reason they showed this and it works great. And then Debbie, I, like I'm waiting for Debbie to get it in the shower. I forget how she dies. Which is amazing, considering this is also one of those scenes that they show, like on Terror in the Isles and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. She climbs into the hammock to read Fangoria, as I've already said, is you know makes her even more awesome. So, so like every pregnant girlfriend reads Fangoria, sure. So, um, and blood starts like as if on cue. Jason has set that body up there and is like, if I just lay it in this perfect angle, when she lays down, it'll start dripping on her. And it's you know, and it starts dripping all over the ad for fake teeth or whatever. 
And and Debbie in a great ADR line, what's this? Because um, her mouth is not moving. So <laughs> when that happens, gets it Kevin Bacon style through the hammock. Yeah, it, it, that's that's definitely probably like my third favorite kill of the movie. It is uh, gross too, man. I mean, it the blood it, spurts. It looks really good. Like yeah. it looks really, it's really well done. Um, this is must be why they had all the off-screen kills earlier because they were saving their money for this one for I, the money shot. The problem is that they blow it all in these because the next two kills are lame. But I mean, th- this one is is right up there with Andy's in my opinion, and right alongside of Vera's in terms of just effectiveness and the way it works on the screen. And Tracy Savage will tell you it took them like a day. A whole day of shooting to get this because they did the whole cast of her chest, like her head's up behind and trying to get the angle right and then trying to make sure the thing spurts the right way and all this stuff. And she said it it looked gross on the set when they did it and it looked even better on screen. So, but kudos to her for selling it. I mean, it's it's well done. I, I know I'm praising somebody who's not like a real actor or anything. I think she gives the best performance in the film, you know? <laughs> Yeah, if if anything, she comes across the most like a normal <laughs> normal human being. This is probably why she's got a career in news, you know, <laughs> because she comes off like someone you can relate to, which is oh, what yeah, want TV sure. news people to do. So yeah, I could I could totally see it. But they're gone, and now we get to Chuck and Chili. We have to say these are pretty bad kills, right? Like Chuck gets thrown into a fuse box. There's, that's kind of lame, right? Like I needed. How could he not get killed with like a a drug paraphernalia of some kind? Yeah, like have his, his a bong rammed into his eye, or something, or like some yeah. kind of marijuana pipe like jammed in his neck. Yeah, something like Jason would have used a lighter and lit him on fire. You know, something. I guess they didn't have the money for it or whatever. But yeah, they didn't have money for a guy on fire. But <laughs> yeah. clearly, they could have jammed something like jammed some kind of pipe into his neck and had blood spray out of the mouth of the pipe. I, I think that would have been a cheap but good effect. I mean, corn syrup doesn't cost you that much, and you just need a plastic tube. Exactly, and they've got tons of that laying around, clearly. So I, I don't know. It, it's a lame death. Chili's is okay because of the implication of what it could be. I mean, she gets a hot fire poker, uh, fire poker in the ribs. Um, but I, I don't know. It's uh, she's basically just getting impaled when it's all said and done. So the fact that it's on fire doesn't really matter. That actually would cauterize the wound, I think. I think that, I think that um, much like I did. They forgot it. these two were characters in the movie, <laughs> and then they had to. Re- then they, when they got to the end of filming, they were like, "Oh, we still got two more people to kill. Uh, let's just do it in one day. All right, you get smashed into a fuse box. We'll we'll set some sparklers off, and you just get stabbed with a thing." <laughs> yeah, the end. <laughs> yeah, I I do I do think they did forget about them, and they went back and had it in later. I can't find any proof of that, but I I believe in your theory. I think there's merit to it. Uh, Paul, boy, I tell you, oh, Paul gets tortured, then killed. All right, um, you know, Chris is looking for everybody. She can't find anybody yet, and Paul's outside, and he can't say anything because Jason's got his hand over his mouth and his hand on top of his head, and I was expecting him to like rip the head off, right? Like I thought that's what's going to happen here. He's going to rip his head clear off. Instead, he he crushes his head until that fake eyeball pops out toward the screen, kind of like the way the snake did in the first scene. Matter of fact, it may have been the same spring. Do you think it was the same eyeball that uh, New Ralph was <laughs> waving around earlier? Would not doubt it. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it for a second that it was the same fake eyeball. Uh, think how long it took him to set that one up. 
to get the thing to pop out right. It's, that had to be like hours of, and days to get that shot right. Um, the, the, the actor here tells a funny story about, because later he gets thrown through the, the window, uh, you know, to, to scare Chris. And uh, Kratka tells this story that, um, it, you know, they had a stuntman there to do it. And they had like an air ram that ramped the guy through the window, but they kept missing. And they kept hitting him low and high and low and high. It took him forever to finally get it where he got through the window. So, he says, so this poor stuntman spent a day getting jammed into the side of a house. And then I got to go and lay on the ground. So <laughs> I thought, man, what, you know, they, they clearly had a, you know, were in a hurry at that point to get stuff done. But we, we now get Final Girl in her final chase, right? Because we've got to do this in every movie, it seems like. This, the Final Girl's got to go on a chase with Jason. But I will say that that Chris gets in some licks uh, along the way on old, you know, using Rick's body. I've been calling him Paul. That's the actor's name, but his character's name is Rick. She gets in some good stabs along the way. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's definitely a lot more, um, a lot more agency than we got in the first two movies uh, from our final girl. She's definitely uh, a little bit more on the ball, a little bit more aggressive. It's a nice, kind of a nice change of pace. Than just you're running and screaming. Uh, now you get running and screaming and stabbing. I do want to ask you, as she's hanging off the roof there or out the window and Jason's got her jacket and the members-only jacket rips, does that count as a kill since the 1980s and it's a members-only jacket? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's that's probably the most expensive shot of the movie. <laughs> it probably was. She She comes away pretty good on him. I mean, she hangs him off the hay bale thing, uh, which was really great, and I love the way he like gets away from that. She's trying to get out the door, and then he like does a one-arm pull-up on it, you know, and pulls the mask up. I expected to see uh, what's one-arm push-up man from City Slickers. What's that guy's name? Jack Palance. I expected yeah. to see Jack Palance behind the mask at that point. I was like, that's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty awesome right there. Yeah, that was really, uh, that was really an impressive display. Unimpressive is the face that they've got on Jason. We already the, called it out for being Toxic Avenger meets Chunk or whatever. It is, that is horrible. You mean the bad rubber mask because they yes. couldn't afford to do He full, looks full so goofy. <laughs> There's nothing frightening about that. It's kind of a hills have eyes type thing, but... Yeah, but that's that's how Michael Berryman looks all the time, though. That's the problem. <laughs> I know. Either that, or he's the drummer from you know ACDC that sits in from them from time to time when the other one's not out murdering people, you know, <laughs> and stuff. Uh, the bald one, so or the lead singer of Midnight Oil. Take your pick. You know, they're they're all they, over they, there. They definitely um, in this one they said something like they had two different Jason faces. One that was applied with a bunch of makeup that took like six hours. Uh, and I'm hope I'm not confusing this with one of the other movies, but. And then the other shot, for most of the time, it was the hockey mask over a rubber mask. <laughs> yeah, I, I can believe that, actually. Yeah. So, uh, but no, I, I do like, though, that Ali, in a moment of redemption, comes back to take on Jason. But Jason whacks, you know, cuts the arm off. That was a great looking effect, by the way, with the arm getting cut. Uh, oh, and yeah. then, like, over murders him, right? Like, he chops him into hamburger meat on the ground there. Because we don't see it, but you hear it. And the Foley work is amazing right there. Yeah, it's definitely um, – that's one of the f the scenes where we actually get Jason uh, starting to over-murder people. Maybe he, maybe he was like, whoa, huh, I thought this guy was dead already. 
guess I didn't finish the job. And so the, since then, he's been overly murdery. Like, yeah, <laughs> it goes to an abundance of effort to make sure that these people are all dead. Yeah, I mean, he definitely does. But the, Chris nails him with that axe, and that's a great shot. And he is, like, stunned by it and then reaches out for her and kind of Frankenstein's toward her for a second. I, I thought that was really effective. Yeah, that was um, kind of the first glimpse of the supernatural-ish Jason that we're going to get later on, I yeah. think. Yeah, hold that thought, because I've got questions about that that we'll get to when when we get to part four here. But it's a great ending with him falling down on that hay bale, bleeding. And then the inexplicable coda in the lake, though, um, with Jason unmasked, running around the house, bloody, and the newly reheaded Mrs. Voorhees in the lake. What what was that all about? I, I think they're trying to establish that as like a the same sort of hallucination that uh, we got in the first part where little Jason showed up to drag her into the water. Um, but, like, not only is Mrs. Voorhees, like, she puts on her sweater again to get back in that lake with her sewn-on head again, and she jumps out, and, like, unlike that first one where it's a quick shot and the kid drags Alice under or whatever, they linger on that one, like, way too long, <laughs> and it looks bad. It totally, yeah. under, it totally undermines whatever you're trying to do in that shot, which I don't know what you were trying to do, but it was it was dumb. Uh, what's a much better ending is Chris, like, being shoved into the... My wife got a kick out of the way the cop is, like, leading her out and shoves her into the police car. <laughs> You know, like she's a perp or something, and she's just like crying and laughing at the same time. I did like the fact that she had just gone crazy, you know, from it. That this is three women in a row now that Jason is well, two that he's just driven nuts. One he stabbed through the head, but the other two are just crazy now. Yeah, um, that was a kind of a fun. Uh, <laughs> that was <laughs> that was a really fun moment. I I had forgotten about the perp walk that she has to do at the end. So that was a, that was a, a pleasant surprise to me. Yeah. A I moment mean, like, of un- unintentional comedy. Right. When you've got Sheriff tattoo there, you know, to, to lead her off with his super seventies mustache and uh, to, to shove her into the back of that cop car. It was a, a little unsettling, but, but funny nonetheless. So. Maybe he, maybe he thought, maybe he forgot that he was on the set of a horror movie and thought he was back on the set of Hill Street Blues. It could have been, could have been. Maybe he was, he looks like the guy that would be like one of the horn players in the theme song, though. Like he could have <laughs> been one of those guys for like the, you know, the, the Moody Blues or the, the Doobies or he'd like a Doobie Brothers, what he looked like. But anyway, I think we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to, to put the Doobies out and to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, what are yours for Friday the 13th, part three, Ron? Uh, once again, I hate to say it, I had a lot of fun with this one. Um, it has some of the best kills of the series, uh, like we said. So, it's worth watching for that point alone. Um, and while it's it's it, it seems like they have more of an idea of what they want the movies to be at this point, um, in spite of the three D, it's like they've they've it's like they finally settled on Jason. This is this is how Jason's going to look. This is the weapon Jason's going to be known for, uh, and it kind of this is basically the first Friday the Thirteenth movie that feels like a Friday the Thirteenth movie. Uh, so I had a lot of fun with it. I'm willing to go uh, not to a large popcorn, but like maybe a medium popcorn with some extra butter. 
or like a bag of M&Ms that you dump down into the popcorn. Ooh, that's that's an interesting uh, modifier. I hadn't seen that one before, so I'm about to try that. I'm with you that I, I had a lot more fun with this movie than I really should have, considering how poorly the plot is constructed and that there really isn't one and how poorly outside of Debbie it is acted. But the effects, the 3D effects are terrible. The kill effects are about half and half, but the half that's good are really good. And I do like the ending of it. It's not great. I, I don't even think it's as good as part two. But it's fun enough, and it goes down pretty easy. I'm going to give it a, just a good medium popcorn. It's it's not the worst thing you could watch. And again, if you go into this Friday the 13th series expecting you know high art and, and serious psychological terror, you're you're in the wrong movie series. Go watch Halloween. That's what that is. Don't don't expect that out of this bunch. They're they're doing this totally on the money grabbing for the cheap, and for that. Eh, it mostly works again, so I'll give it medium popcorn. Yeah, they'll they'll save the psychological aspects for Kenneth Branagh's Friday the Thirteenth, <laughs> indeed. So, which we will be getting to in a few weeks. So, um, well, folks, thanks for joining us in this latest edition of Film Strip. Of course, you can find all of our episodes at. Um, our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies. You can follow us on Facebook there, also on Twitter. Follow us individually on Twitter as well. We give a lot of updates there and let us know what you think of the show and give, leave us a positive review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. We appreciate your support. Until next time, for Ron, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121.